Welcome to Deep Dives with Tramika Benjamin, a podcast dedicated to giving you an in-depth look at innovative strategies that you can use in your institutions. This week's episode features Dr. Philip Neal, a recommendation from last week's guest, Dr. Linda Garcia, where she shared how his work was the gold standard for the working learner. But what you'll soon learn is that it's not just something he did for this cohort of adult learners, but this is a standard that he set in place for the entire institution. So listen, I'm sure you're gonna love this episode. It was quite the treat. I mean, the time I had with him was fantastic. I learned so much and I'm positive you're gonna wanna hear more. So if you wanna learn more, I welcome you to go visit www.deepdivestv.com. And that's where you'll find more information, information on this episode, ways to subscribe, any bonus clips or anything, all the good stuff related to Deep Dives with Tremika Benjamin. So without further ado, let's dive in. So thank you so, so much, Dr. Neal, for being on Deep Dives with Tremika Benjamin. And before I get too far into it, do you mind if I call you Phil? Absolutely. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So there's no secret. You know, I had a conversation with Dr. Garcia and she was over the moon about the work that Sky CTC has been doing over the past couple of years. Um, our conversation, just to kind of set the table, it was about the intersection of working and learning um, in the environment that we have, whether it's post-COVID or just in life period. And so she talked a lot about what you did at South Central Kentucky Technical and Community College. So before I get into all my questions, tell me about the history. What's going on with this? Well, we've seen a lot of change in higher education in general over the last decade, or really since 2008 when the Great Recession hit. And so I'll, I'll use that point in time as a perspective setting framework, because it was really then that we started to see a lot of change at South Central Kentucky Community Technical College, which, by the way, You'll hear me refer to that as Sky CTC, or our students call it Sky for short. You'll hear me use those acronyms since our name is, is a little bit longer. But um, going back in time to then up till today, there's been a number of things that we've looked at with the adult learner, in particular, the adult learner in relation to working, that we have instituted a number of success measures and innovations, some built upon one another, or some led to the next, that has really helped us today do a much better job of engaging our students, helping them work while they're learning. And that required us looking in the mirror and, and changing some things, as well as raising the bar for our students. And so it really has been a little bit longer journey. But as we see, I think, in higher education, a number of the things that really have true impact, they take some time. Right, right. And let me ask you a question. What was you know that key factor or what were some of the key factors that made you realize that Sky CTC was struggling with their adult learners? It actually, interestingly enough, wasn't a struggle we were having. Back in 2008, we were going through a mission expansion. We were a technical college for many, many years without the transfer component. But the goal was for us to become a comprehensive community and technical college by adding on the transfer programs. Mm -hmm. And we knew from previous experience, I had worked at other institutions. We knew from research and from our, some of our sister institutions in Kentucky that when you bring on general education transfer programs, you're more likely to see students who are undecided because they know that someday they want that bachelor's degree, they're transfer bound, but they may not be sure. And you're also more likely to see part-time students. And we know that undecided students and part-time students have lower success rates, statistically speaking. So as we were planning for that mission change of bringing in this population, we really wanted to think about things we could put in place proactively to help engage those students at higher levels and increase their success. At the same time, because we're talking about 2008, 
we know what happened with the Great Recession. Floods and floods of what would be adult students were losing their jobs, their lives were completely being turned upside down, and they were coming back to school in waves. And we've seen that happen a number of times over the years in higher education when the economy takes its ups and downs. So between the mission expansion and because we had floods of students uh, or waves of students coming to us and in volumes we had never seen before, many of whom were not your traditional age student. They had been working for years. They might have had families. They may not have ever been to college, or if they had, it had been a few years since they had uh, they didn't been even out know of high school. They didn't even know they needed to think about it. They didn't know exactly, they didn't exactly. So we knew they were more likely to try uh, be undecided, trying to figure out what they do with the rest of their life. They're, since they've been out of school for a while, they were more likely to have developmental needs. See, all these risk factors were coming with them. So we really had to sit back and say, how do we put some things in proactively to manage that population coming to us in, in large waves? And so that's when we really were working heavily with the Center for Community College Student Engagement and looking at a lot of their research and other folks' research about practices that truly do lead to student success. And were we doing them? Should we implement some of those? And, uh, you know, at the time, there was a mantra that uh, Dr. K. McClenney, who was leading SESI at the time, uh, coined called Students Don't Do Optional. We really grabbed onto that and asked ourselves, do we need to raise the bar for all students coming through our front doors to help increase their level of success? So that's, that's kind of the perspective that we were working from at that time. And what really fascinates me about the way that you approach this work, because, you know, along my time with the swim team, what I've realized quickly is that when institutions face challenges like this, they ask themselves, what do we do? What are some of the main indicators that we can actually focus on and move and progress to be able to help, whether it's our students of color or whether it's our non-traditional students, whether it's our first time in college students? And oftentimes what those answers end up being is, let's lower the bar. But what I just heard you say is, how do we raise that bar a bit and have our students raise to the challenge of what the economy is going to withstand when they're ready to go out into the workforce? And it actually is a perfect segue into a question, because I have to confess, I spent a lot of time looking at your pathway structure at Sky, and um, it's extremely impressive. And a lot of the reason that I am in love with it is because it's a very similar, you have made it much more polished. But one of the things that I always say to my clients is you've got to begin with the end in mind with mm-hmm. your prospective students. You can't say, just trust me, come to XYZ Community College. No, there's no trust me. What is in it for me now? And if you tell them, hey, by the way, do you want to be an accountant? Perfect. Because Sky CTC has exactly what you need. So let's get you in a major straight away and then get you on that path. So I fell in love with the way that you tackled your pathways model because you absolutely require every student to declare a major. And I just want you to talk a little bit about that because I know that half of the listeners are like, this man's crazy. And the other half is like, I wish I could do that, but my (laughs) vice presidents won't let me. So talk to me a little bit about how you did it and what it looks like. Right. So one of the things that we know is that when students don't have a goal, they're more likely to stop out, drop out, just not succeed with attaining a goal because they simply don't have one. We also know the federal government and even state governments that provide a lot of financial aid don't want students utilizing financial aid when they don't have a goal. In and so we had to take a look at that. And, and we did for many years have undecided as an option for students to choose and click on the admissions form. And, and that's exactly what we saw is that when they were undecided, they were more likely to flounder, bounce around and not likely to succeed. And so it was a a bold step, but we said, let's take that away. 
Let's just not give them the option. But in its place, we have to do some things and put some things in place on the front end to help our students explore career options. One of the things as a former career counselor myself is I saw a lot of stress. I mean, people put a tremendous amount of stress, whether they're an 18-year-old, a 35-year-old, doesn't matter. Tremendous amount of stress on themselves about picking a major or a career, I should say. That's the perfect career out of all these thousands of options out there. Right. And it really becomes such a stressful event that it freezes people's decision-making. And so how can we help them cut through the fog of all the stress and options out there? And so we had to develop our own career exploration tool. We built one in-house, but we wanted to make it so easy a sixth grader could use. And so we made it very visual. And, and the whole premise behind it is, is to help students take the whole world of work and find out where their interests lie and have that process will help them narrow it down to a few career sectors. And by default, it whittles out or pushes aside many other career sectors that they're just not interested in. And that reduces the number of choices they can, they can come to. And that actually helps relieve stress is when they have fewer options to choose from, it relieves stress and it opens them up to be able to make choices. And so that was one of the premises behind doing a career exploration tool we also wanted to provide it to free to the world and, and particularly our, our K-12 systems because they struggle with resources and they uh, all the students in Kentucky have to have an individual learning plan and have a career goal in mind. So we wanted them to have access to a free tool that was very visually appealing, that focused on careers in our region that our college serves and programs that we have on board that will train people. Because as we know in community colleges, most of our students come from the region our community colleges serve. They want to be educated in our region. They want to go back to work in our region. And so that's how our alignment of careers and career paths through our college on out into industry uh, helped us build this tool. So what do you say if someone says, I don't want to put people in a major straight away because it's going to cause them to keep changing their minds and delaying graduations and impacting their ability to transfer? What's your response to that? I would ask them, have they looked at how many credits their average student takes to degree completion? And I would ask them to go in and analyze that. It's actually a number that we track in the Kentucky Community and Technical Colleges. It's the average credits to degree for our graduates. And our goal is to keep reducing that over the years because what we have found in higher education, I was just reading an article the other day from some national data that I think it said uh, the average community college graduate has over 80 credit hours. I could be wrong on that number, but it was over, it was in the 80 range. And if, if an associate's degree is somewhere in the 60 to 65 credit hour range, think of how many credits and classes a student is taking, paying for that they may not need. Now, we know some students need developmental courses. That's, that's okay. But we don't want students taking a tremendous amount of classes that they don't need. And the more that we allow them to push off into the future the decision on picking a, a goal the more likely they are to take courses that they don't need. And things like academic advising, if we don't help them along that journey and we allow them to self-advise, the more likely it is they're going to pick courses inadvertently that they spend money on, that they didn't need. And it just, it prolongs the journey. And in many cases, it can sidetrack the journey. So I would ask any college official to look at their institution's data and find out how long is it taking your average student to graduate as far as the number of credit hours. It's one of the things with the practices that we've put in place over the years, some of our required practices, like we have had since this whole journey began for us, required academic advising, 
We do not allow students to self-advise. It's part of that career pathways model from the very first time that they come to us. We sit down with them, whether it's a faculty or a staff advisor. We don't allow them to self-register or self-advise. We sit down with them. If they need career exploration, we provide that. Uh, but once we, once we help them pick a goal, a degree program, then we lay out the entire degree journey from the very first class to the very last class. It's actually why our academic folks have built a two-year class schedule. Even though the students only register for one class or one semester at a time, we can lay out all their classes for two years and help them pick classes that meet their life demands, their work demands, and build an entire path to degree completion. And it helps reduce the number of classes that they would inadvertently take if we had not had that in place. And so it required a lot of change, a lot of innovation, but it's helped our students on the front end. And as a result of all this work, like I said, we, we track across our 16 community and technical colleges in Kentucky, the average degree, the average credits to degree completion. Our college has, for the last handful of years, had a decreasing amount of credits for our graduates to degree completion and actually have the lowest in the state. Uh, and I attribute that to the required academic advising, the career pathway model, because we lay it all out at front. We don't allow self-advising or self-registration. And I know that that sounds sometimes like a heavy-handed approach, a very controlling approach. But what it does lead to is higher student, higher levels of student success. Exactly. And ability to transfer. Exactly. Much easier from what I'm hearing. And mm-hmm. what, I, what I also am fascinated about, and you just touched on it, is this, your approach to academic advising. So you mm-hmm. talked about the fact that it was mandatory, and I 100% understand that. But I also saw a quote from you that it, had, it alluded to, and correct me if I'm wrong if you remember this, Phil. So it was academic advising is often the only ongoing one-on-one relationship that a student has with any person in this college. So therefore, if I were an academic advisor to this person, Tremika is Sky CTC mm-hmm. in a lot of respects. So when you think about this adult learner, do you think that, I mean, at this point, I mean, whether it's an adult learner or not, but how do you feel the impact of that, that it required advising experience? What does that look like? And what does that impact look like? Because I'm hearing a lot more relational and probing engagement rather than this transactional sending out an email to remind people to register and enroll. You know what I mean? Right, right. Well, one of the things we have to do is take a step back from our students and the work that we do in higher education. Just think about people in general, human nature. By design, we are social creatures. We thrive on social interaction, particularly in scary or new environments. And college is one of those things, particularly for community college students who are more likely to be a first-generation student. Going into a new environment, although it can be very exciting, for first-generation students in particular, it's very scary. They don't have anybody at home that can give them, I've been there, done it kind of knowledge base. And so it's very important. And then if you start thinking about, like we saw during the Great Recession, lots of dislocated workers who may have never been to college. They were older in life, lots of demands on their life. This is a very scary journey. So for someone to come to college and have a person that they can work with on a regular basis, even if it's just once a semester, hopefully more, but even if it's just one, it's that same person on a regular basis through academic advising, which is one of the the things that we require every semester, it gives a student somebody they can turn to, somebody they know they can pick up the phone call and call if they've got questions, if they're nervous about something, they're not sure if they're doing things right. Now that can be a mentor, a student mentor advisor, it could be a staff advisor, it could be a faculty advisor, but the point is they have a person that they can communicate with on a regular basis to call 
when they get a little nervous, when they get a little scared or just unsure. And you have a structure where it could be a student advisor, a faculty advisor, or an academic or professional advisor. And how does that work when the faculty are engaged in this relationship and they say, you know, my class load is too big, I'm not able to advise students? What does that look like? Like, how do they know the pass off and any engagement for that? Well, historically, our faculty did all the advising. And then a few years ago, as we continued to grow as an organization, our faculty and staff brainstormed some new ways to deal with advising and still keep it to enhance our advising. And so out of that effort came the recommendation that we build a centralized advising center for incoming students for the first semester. That's part of our redesign of our onboarding process that was part of the whole career pathways movement. So we have a mixture now. As students come in, they will go to the advising center. And then after that first semester, they're handed off to the faculty advisor in their program area. And that has helped to level advising loads across all of our faculty and and program areas. So we now have staff and faculty advise. We don't have students do formal advising with other students, but we do have a peer mentoring program that we incorporated a number of years ago that has been very, very powerful. Again, it's one more person that a new student or a continuing student can turn to for help and guidance, but we make the mentoring a mandatory thing for all incoming students for their first semester, which has been very powerful in impacting retention as well. And was there anything different? Was there a pedagogical shift inside of the classroom in any way? Like, how did your faculty respond to all of these changes? <laughs> well, a lot of the changes were faculty driven. Going back wow. in time, one of the things that, you know, when we had this huge wave of particularly older folks coming to school with us back during the recession. We knew that the recession only lasts for a short period of time. We didn't know if it was going to be six months or two years or whatever. And what we also knew is that that adult learner was going to just as likely leave our institution and go back to work when the jobs come back because they have families to support and other life demands. So we had to think into the future about not only how do we help these folks be successful while they're with us, but when the jobs come back and we knew that they would, industry primarily wants them to come to work Monday through Friday, eight to five, which is exactly the same time that we wanted our students to be on campus was Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday in some cases, eight to five. A student can't be in both places at the same time. And when the jobs did start to come back, industry was trying to fill jobs and we were starting to have labor shortages and they were looking at higher education as almost part of the problem then because we were trying to keep students on campus at the same time they were trying to fill these jobs. So out out of our desire to help promote economic development, we had to take a hard look in the mirror and say, if something's going to change, it's going to have to be with the way we teach. It's not that the quality was bad, but the format was kind of your historical, traditional model of teaching Monday through Friday from eight to five. So we had to start to look at different ways of facilitating a student working while learning, because we knew if they were forced to do one or the other, it wouldn't be learning. Uh, they would go back to, to the paycheck to support their families. And so we actually, it was one of the few things that we didn't do at scale immediately, but we set a goal to do it at scale long-term. And we started with a program where industry was heavily involved and, and students that wanted to be in this manufacturing program would be hired on with an industry. The industries that were part of this agreed that they would allow their employees slash student to work three days a week and then go to school with us two days a week. So we changed the way we taught in some sense, but their continued employment became a condition of them finishing their education. And what we saw out of that program that we call Sky Fame, 
it's in a number of different communities across Kentucky and now across America, is that the, the success levels were 90% plus graduation rates. Oh, crazy. Uh, students were working and earning a salary while they were going to school and the, and the work and learn was hand in hand. So students were staying out of debt. They formed almost a cohort mentality where they supported each other through this program. And we thought, how can we tap into that? I mean, these graduation rates were some of the highest we've seen out of any program in history. So how do we take that to scale? So one of the things we did is we turned to our faculty and said, you know, there's a lot of different ways of doing flexible delivery. Fame is one model. And of course, we've been doing online education for a number of years, and that's a different model. And as we've seen coming through COVID this last year all across America, hybrid was another model. So as we turned to our faculty and said, let's set a goal for ourselves that over a period of a few years, we try to allow the faculty to have the freedom to pick which kind of flexible delivery model they want and take that program and transform it. And so in a period of uh, from about 2013 to about 2018, our faculty had that flexibility. We kept reinforcing and providing the resources they needed to do that. And they were really the champions of this whole effort. And now we have just about every single program that we have here at our college offered in a flexible way that a student can get their two-year degree by only having to be on campus a couple of days a week at most, which allows them to work and fill jobs and support their families. And, and today we look at the working adult as anybody 18 and older. We don't look at the 25 and older being your traditional yeah. adult working student. We, we look at everybody because we're encouraging them all to work. And what, what part of the making this successful, we've got to do a good job of reaching out to industry and helping them understand what's possible now in this new model. So now we've got more and more industries who are hiring Joe or Jane off the street saying, I want you to go to school out at Sky CTC while I'm employing you to some level during the week. And we can accommodate that in very flexible ways. And if you go back to the SESI national report that they put out last year on working adult learners, it's somewhere in the 70% range is the average percentage of community college students who are working while they go to school. Ours is 84%, so almost 15% higher than the national average, and graduation rates are climbing. We have um, had tremendous uh, student success uh, numbers over the, over the past few years, but it required us to do some change. And what I really like about what you're saying, as a lot of institutions underwent around that same time, underwent this mission expansion of merging their community college and their technical colleges, a lot of times what would happen is those institutions would look to how do we make ourselves function and act like a community college? And oh, by the way, we have that technical college over there. Right. Where what you've done is you've pulled all the things that's great out of both and you've injected them into both entities, right? So this mm -hmm. whole concept of let me work with business and industry and put them on the hook for their portion of this deal. You've done that, whether it's an AA degree or a certificate. And it's just mm -hmm. so compelling to me and it's mm -hmm. extremely fascinating. And there's one thing that um, I want you to talk about and it's this workplace ethics yeah. practice, right? Because I am so fascinated. If there's one group, if I'm ever in front of you, no offense, Phil, I want to see you and hug you, but I really want to talk to that faculty because you've got some yeah. jewels over there. They really are so entrepreneurial in how they tackle the work once you give them a challenge. So can you talk to me a little bit about the workplace ethics practice work? Yeah, this, this work came out of, as I was saying earlier in 2008, we, the recession hit, we had these large volumes of people coming to us at a breakneck pace in higher education. But then a few years later, as the jobs started to come back, we were hearing from industry 
And it really didn't matter if you were talking about manufacturers or healthcare or business and IT or retail and hospitality. They were all saying the same thing to our faculty. Where's the work ethic in these high school graduates and these college graduates? You know, many times they call them the soft skills. Uh, We've been talking about this for a decade in higher education. How do we deal with this? Well, we really started to hear it in about 2010. And our faculty came back to us and said, we're hearing it from all these industries. What do we do? Because work ethic is not something you can change in a person by putting through a Friday afternoon workshop. Work ethic is so deeply ingrained in somebody's personality and, and belief system that to change something like that really requires some pervasive, long-term work with our students to get them to change the way they see themselves in the world, in the world of work itself. And so we worked with our faculty and we let them drive this conversation because they were the one that brought the concern forward and they really wanted to help, which was the big important piece here. They really wanted to help. We just didn't know what to do. So they went back to our industry representatives that we work with in all these different career sectors and said, give us your HR policies from your hospitals, from your manufacturing companies, from these, and highlight the pieces of your HR policies that deal with the work ethic struggles you're having within your organization. So it's about showing up on time or putting in a full day's work or being professional, dress code, using technology like cell phones in the workplace. So our faculty formed a committee and consolidated all these policies from industry and filtered them into a common set of, I'll call them behavioral expectations. And it was, uh, it's kind of the piece, it's about being punctual and participatory and professional. That really was, it permeated all industries. And they said, okay, these are behavioral expectations. Can we take that set of behavioral expectations that all industries expect and put them in our classroom? And not just in some classrooms, but can we put them in all classrooms? And our faculty voted to do that at scale. I've never been more proud of a a group of faculty in my life. And they built a common language that they built into their syllabi. And if they wanted to stop it at any point, that was completely their baby. This was not an administrative mandate. It was not a college-required activity. This was a faculty-led student success initiative to help with the work ethic of our graduates, soon-to-be graduates. And so it was very interesting that first semester, you always have a lot of fear about new innovations and new change, particularly when it goes in at scale like this. Our faculty across the board, whether it was a communication or an English class or a culinary arts or a welding class, they all implemented a set of behavioral expectations commonly across all classes. You know, you worry that you're going to have a whole bunch of students lined up outside your door complaining the next day as soon as our faculty implement this set of standards. But it was amazing how few complaints we had and how many salutes and thank yous we had from our students saying, thank you for making it serious on what is expected of a student in a classroom from a behavioral standpoint, because you always have a few students here or there that are not so serious and they kind of can be disruptive to the serious students in class. We had more of the thank yous for making Johnny or Jane be serious in class than we had complaints about this raising the bar, raising the expectation. One of the neatest things that I that I, I liked about it is faculty really felt like they had each other's back now because you know you always have students that'll say, well, why can't you be as easy as my other teacher over here? Why do you have to be so tough? Well, now they all had a similar set of expectations and the faculty really felt more empowered in the classroom. And it was it was a neat experience for us. So that practice has been in place. Our faculty have kept that going and they've presented all over the country on this practice up until last fall when COVID hit. They paused it last fall because of everything going on. And we didn't want students feeling like they had to pressure themselves to come to class when maybe they were exposed and whatnot. 
mm-hmm. it was interesting to see. It wasn't even midterms before our faculty started to notice students falling back into the path of least resistance and not staying on top of work as much as they should and not coming to class as much as they should. But we allowed that to happen because of COVID. We didn't want right. to cross over into something that would have been unhealthy for our students. But they immediately said, this coming year, it's going back in. <laughs> and so it's, it's been a great journey. And I really feel like that's a major part of some of the successes that we've had as a college. So I want to ask a quick question. When you think about all this work that you have done to tackle that 18 plus audience, if you could identify some barriers along the way, uh, because, you know, as people are thinking like, goodness, I don't know how this man was able to implement all of this stuff. I would have this obstacle, this obstacle. Like I want them to know, hey, you're not alone. I had them all too. (laughs) Here's some of the things I struggled with, right? Absolutely, we did. And and almost every barrier we had was self-imposed. It was fear. And it wasn't, uh, it was interesting. I read an, uh, a book a couple of months back that talked about the fear of change that most people, and it said, people don't really fear change because change happens all the time. What we fear is loss of something if we change. And it really got me reflecting back on our journey for the last decade. And it's absolutely true. We feared in the very beginning, as we said, students don't do optional. So therefore we're going to have mandatory orientation and academic advising and note late, late registration, all these other things, workplace ethics that students would just go screaming, running away to the nearest other institution and our enrollment would drop off the face of the earth and we would have to close programs and lose jobs. That was all fear that was self-imposed because we were going to tackle something, take calculated risks in ways that we had never done before. But what we realized is that if we're all in it together and we do this, particularly when we can do it at scale, we're all part of the same team trying to move something forward and we had to reinforce within our culture here at the organization that if we fail, we fail forward together. And we're not having one program out on a limb and where they might fear if they, their program wasn't successful, we had to close the program. We all did it together. You know, fear of whether we would have enough money. That was oftentimes, particularly when we were a technical college, primarily we were a much smaller college. When we brought on the transfer component and the recession hit, we doubled in size in four years and we tripled the number of first generation students in three years, you know, we went through tremendous change and we just didn't know whether we'd have the resources to to pay for all this change. But actually when we did it all together and we we did it at scale, we realized that the the resources were not the issue and the barriers were not the issue. We were the barrier. Our fear of the unknown was the greatest barrier. And so that's my recommendation is to involve your folks early and have these conversations together and understand You need an organizational culture that encourages calculated risk-taking and that you want people to try new ideas and try new things. And that's been some of the greatest successes that we've had is when we've done it together. And we don't always know what all the answers are, but uh, we can lean on each other. We can share ideas between institutions or organizations like SESI and others. And through that, we can overcome a lot of the barriers that we may think are not able to overcome. And... My last question is, how are things going now? You know, what's going on with this work? Do you have anything new on the horizon? Well, we're going to continue to uh, work on the work and learn models and our career pathways work. Like I said before, we changed the way we teach to facilitate work and learn. We had to change our, two years ago, we completely changed our new onboarding system to fully encompass all the career exploration work we did, but also to, to, to move away from things like mass orientations to more of an individualized, customized onboarding process. So every student gets a unique onboarding process, a very personalized relationship-based 
orientation process. We're going to continue strengthening those. Overall, has been a very good journey for us. We're very blessed in Kentucky because we have 16 colleges that work very collaboratively with one another, share ideas. We share resources through our state office that we call KCTCS. It's, uh, we're all part of one large KCTCS organization. And so it's fantastic to be in a part of a, a collaborative group like that, that we can share ideas and bounce ideas off of each other. And because that's what it's about. And that's why I like your podcast so much, because we are able to share ideas and take nuggets home from each podcast or from another institution. For us, though, the journey has been really good. Enrollment, because we did a lot of this innovative work, has stabilized during a period of time when the economy had been getting so strong and a lot of colleges around the country enrollments had started to go backwards. Right. We had been holding level or growing slightly. And so that, that has really been good for us because we were allowing students to keep the job and get their education. Uh, because we raised the bar and we, we took to scale a number of student success practices and that students don't do optional mindset, our graduation rates have reached all-time highs. Our, the number of underrepresented minorities in the last five or six years that have graduated has quadrupled. Job placement quadrupled? rates quadrupled. And one of the things that I'm most excited about is some new data that the state of Kentucky is tracking. And that is job placement rates of graduates. Where are your graduates going? Are they staying inside of Kentucky, working in Kentucky companies? Are they leaving the state? And when you look at the 42 higher ed institutions in Kentucky, both four-year colleges and universities and two-year colleges. If you look at associate and bachelor degree completers, we have one of the highest job placement rates in the state of Kentucky because our students are working while they're going to school and they're, they're making these connections with employers before they ever graduate and they're staying with these employers. One of the things that's probably the close, nearest and dearest to my heart, though, is student debt. We have really been focused on doing things that help our students understand how to stay out of debt and get their education. And part of that is the work and learn models where they can earn a living while they're going to school. We have record levels for the last 10 years. We're reaching record level low amounts of loans that are being dispersed to our students, although our enrollment has been, been staying very strong over the years. And then kind of the apple or the cherry on top for me. I'm just so proud of our college and the work that our faculty and staff have done that have led to these kinds of levels of student success is that last year, the Aspen Institute recognized us as one of the top 150 colleges in the nation for their overall Aspen Award, but also they had a secondary award that was about excellence and equity in STEM disciplines. We also were one of the finalists on that. And then lastly, as a college president, one of the things that you always take a lot of stock in is trying to build a great organizational culture. And that's not something that's done by one person. That really takes time and takes your entire organization to understand what makes you special and how do you reinforce that? Why do students like coming to school here and how do we keep that rolling forward? And so our, our faculty and staff have earned us uh, recognition this last year. For the seventh year, we've been selected as one of the best companies to work for in the state of Kentucky. And I really attribute to the things that we do at scale together. Uh, it, it really builds that sense of teamwork when we do things together in large scale. And we're not, it's probably not the right term. We don't do things in a boutique fashion. We don't design a boutique program for this population or a boutique program for that population. We find out what works for human nature, you know, to really engage the human soul in a way that connects us. And we think that that really helps propel student success in ways that we would not be achieving if we were to only focus on specialized programs for each little population that we serve. Right. Well, 
I just want to say, Phil, you're doing some fantastic work there. And I can't wait until the world is normal again so I can just come meet you and that unbelievable faculty and the work that your team's done. So thank you so, so, so much for this time. I appreciate you. You're very welcome. And thanks for allowing us to share just a little bit about our journey. We're, we're happy to have you anytime. And anybody, any of the listeners that want to come visit, we'd love to entertain you in South Central Kentucky. All right, be careful because I'm posting that information. You're going to be surprised. (laughs) So thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. And I want to thank Dr. Neal so much for sharing such valuable information on the great work that he's doing at Sky. So I want to give a little bit of housekeeping on Deep Dives with Tremika Benjamin. We're going to take a brief mid-season break on launching of our episodes. Don't worry, we're still hard at work on deep dives, but what we're doing is planning for our live exclusive events for recordings. So you'll hear more about those live events soon. And if you also want to get on that VIP guest list, you can sign up at www.deepdivestv.com. You can also stay up to date on all of our upcoming events, all of our emails, all the good stuff and the things related to deep dives with Tremika Benjamin. So if you like what you heard, go to the same exact place or either just drop me a line to say, Tremika, this episode's great. Otherwise, we will see you soon and thank you so much for tuning in.